All right, so our text this morning is Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, so you can grab your Bible and make your way there. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find a pew Bible uh, in the rack there in front of you. Page 978 is the text, so I encourage you to find it there. But if you have it, stand up, and uh, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. I will read, and you follow along in your copy there. Ephesians 5, through 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, and he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, so let's get started with this new series. And our goal for this first series, first sermon in the series, is to identify the purpose of human sexuality. We're trying to make sense of Christian sexual ethics in general, but we can't really make sense of Christian sexual ethics if we don't know what Christian sexual ethics are pointed towards. What is the purpose of human sexuality? I suspect that sometimes we can think that God put together Christian sexual ethics or biblical sexual ethics like we might put together a grocery shopping list, right? Just sort of a list of, of things, random things, assortment of items, as though God, after he had created Adam and Eve, he sat there looking at them, pulled out a pencil and a pad of paper, and he's like, all right, I've got to give them some instructions here about how to behave as a man and a woman. So let's see. Uh, sex between a husband and wife. Yep, that sounds, that sounds right. I like that. Sex between a man and a man. No. Woman and woman. No. A man and multiple women. No. A man, a woman and multiple men. Again, no. And on and on it went. That God just kind of wrote down all the things that he could think of that humans might do with their sexuality and came up with a yay or nay on them. And because God's a bit of a buzzkill, he pretty much nixed everything except sex between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. It's not quite like that. We think about a shopping list and sexual ethics and the comparison to them if you want to make sense of the items on a shopping list, it's helpful to know what they're for. Because when we know the meal that the shopper intends to make with the items on the list, then the shopping list begins to make some sense. So if I was in the grocery store and you saw my shopping list and they had on it hamburger buns, ground chuck, tomatoes, ketchup, mustard, pickles, 
Well, you would begin to see that there's a sensibleness to all of those items because they're pointing towards the common meal that is hamburgers, right? And so if we know what the meal is or we know what the items are, we can see how they correspond with each other. And indeed, even if the shopper didn't tell us what the meal was he was intending to make, we'd be able to guess based on the shopping list. And it's the same way with Christianity's sexual ethic. Once we know the meal, as it were, that God is intending to make with the items that he has put on this Christian's sexual ethic list, well, then we can understand the purpose of sexuality. So what's the purpose, the end, that holds together all of God's commands regarding sexual ethics? Well, the reason we're starting here in Ephesians 5 is not because this passage gives us a detailed account of all the different activities that human beings can engage in sexually. We're starting here because this passage offers us an overarching vision of what human sexuality is for, why God created us as sexual beings in the first place. But it doesn't just offer us a vision of marital sexuality, but of human sexuality. So whether you're single, gay, straight, married, transgender, this vision here in Ephesians 5 is for you. This passage is going to tell you what your sexuality is for. This passage is going to help us see three things about Christian sexual ethics, or Christian sexual ethics are going to help us see three things. They're going to help us see the purpose of our sexuality, the power to live out our sexuality according to that purpose. And then most importantly, Christian sexual ethics tell us of God's love for us. So I'm going to teach through this text, and then we're going to look at each of these three points or these three twos that will follow. All right? So into our text here. Now, as you've no doubt already noticed, maybe this is a passage you're familiar with, you've been at church long enough to have heard this read before, but even if this is the first time you've heard this passage read, you've already noticed that throughout this passage, Paul is drawing a parallel between two sets of relationships. I think the parallel is pretty obvious in the opening verses, but let's go back here into 22 through 25 just to remind ourselves of this parallel. Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. The parallel, I think, is pretty clear there to see. The wife is to the husband as the church is to Christ, and the husband is to the wife as Christ is to the church. Now, for many of us, verse 22 is a non-starter. Wives, submit to your husbands. We're out. Done. Paul, that patriarchal misogynist, whatever he has to say, I'm not going to listen anymore. And really, Paul has actually gotten quite a rap uh, in a lot of scholarly literature on this topic as someone who is quite unenlightened about gender and marital relations. Now, there's a lot to be said in Paul's defense on this passage, and I don't want to get distracted from our main point, and I'm actually going to be saying a fair bit about that in tonight's lecture. In truth, 
This passage, if we understand it in the Greco-Roman context, is quite feminist. But without giving my evening lecture this morning and taking us off point, let me just say two quick things in defense of this passage, and then we're going to move on to the point we want to make. First, there are 11 verses here in this passage, and seven and a half of them are aimed at husbands, calling them to sacrificially love their wives. So the main focus of this passage is about how husbands should love rather than about how wives should submit. And second, I think this is perhaps even the more important thing to just say quickly. While the idea of submission, which we find in 22 through 24, sounds especially servile in our cultural ears in particular, if we look at verse 33, we can see that the idea of submission that Paul has in mind is pretty much identical with the idea of respect. So look in verse 33. Let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So the basic punchline of this passage is husbands love your wives and wives respect your husbands. And I think we can all agree, wherever we're coming from, that husbands loving their wives and wives respecting their husbands isn't the worst thing in the world. But as I've said, we're not looking at this passage for insights about how to have a happy marriage. We're looking at this passage for insights about Christianity's account of sex and sexual ethics. So look down to verses 28 through 32. Uh, read them again here with me. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, and he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave a, his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In verse 31, Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, which is the ancient formula for marriage. It's the passage where we read of Adam and Eve being made and them coming together in the first marriage and becoming one flesh with each other. And intrinsic to this account of marriage in Genesis, and then Paul is picking it up here in Ephesians 5, is this idea of a one flesh relationship. Now, the term one flesh, maybe that's a term that's familiar to you. It's a biblical euphemism that refers to sex. It's not necessarily a euphemism that refers to marriage, generally. It refers more specifically or narrowly to sex. So, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is written to the church in Corinth, and he's taking the Corinthian men to task for their sexual immorality, and he tells them that they need to stop becoming one flesh with the prostitutes. He's not saying that they need to stop marrying the prostitutes. He's saying you need to stop having sex with the prostitutes. So while becoming one flesh is an essential aspect of marriage, it's not the equivalent of marriage. To become one flesh means to have sex. So here in 31 and 32, Paul is saying that the one flesh relationship is a profound mystery that refers to Christ and the church. What does he mean when he says that sex refers to Christ and the church. Well, Paul is making a theological move that contemporary Bible scholars and theologians refer to as typology. Now, I've talked about typology before, and I was telling Pastor John that I was going to talk about it again, and he warned me that if I brought up typology again, I was going to burn up one of my boredom bullets. And um, I don't know how many boredom bullets I have left. And I hate to waste one. 
But we can't really understand this passage if we don't understand this concept of typology. So if you already know what typology is, and you know how it functions in this passage, then you can check out for the next probably three minutes. Go on your phone, go to Wordle, do whatever you want to do. I will let you know when we're done talking about typology in Ephesians 5. But for the rest of you, hang with me for just a few minutes because this is actually very important and helpful stuff. The term type is used a number of times throughout Scripture. It's not used here in this passage, but it's used a number of times throughout Scripture. It comes from the Greek word tupos, and it refers to the visible sign that points beyond itself to an unseen higher reality. So the image that's left in hot wax when you press your signet ring into it, the image is a type or a sign. When you see the impression in the wax, you are seeing the sign or the type of the unseen ring. And of course, the image in the wax only has value or meaning insofar as it corresponds to the greater value of the signet ring. So very easily, a type is a visible sign of an unseen object to which the type corresponds. And God planted all sorts of types throughout redemptive history as prophetic foreshadowings, breadcrumbs, that pointed to what was to come in the person and work of Jesus. So whole books are written to look back and see all of these prophetic typological signs that point to Jesus. The New Testament authors do this all the time, especially the book of Hebrews, but Paul does it quite frequently himself. And Paul notes in 1 Corinthians 10, 6, that the story of Israel, the Passover lamb, the exodus out of Egypt, the uh, crossing of the Red Sea, the bread from heaven, the water from Iraq, the serpent on the pole, all of these things that happened in Israel's history were types and signs that pointed beyond themselves to the redemptive work of Jesus. They were intentionally put into the redemptive story by God to forecast the redemption that would come with Jesus. And Paul is saying the same thing here in Ephesians 5 about sex and marriage. He's saying that from the very beginning of human history, God created and ordained sexual union between a man and a woman in marriage to serve as a type, a foreshadowing of Christ's spiritual union with the church. So just as a man and a woman enter into a one-flesh covenantal relationship of earthly marriage, becoming united like a head and a body, so too Christ and the church enter into a one-spirit covenantal relationship of spiritual marriage, becoming united like a head and a body. What this all means is that the earthly sexual union that God has created and ordained is a prophetic announcement of our heavenly spiritual union with God. All right, everyone off your phones. If you were playing Wordle, come back in. Time to check back in. Let's, let's unpack this point in three directions, this typological account of sexuality. or We could call it a Christological account of sexuality. The idea that sex points beyond itself to the higher reality of Christ's spiritual relationship with the church. And that's the first point to be taken. Christian sexual ethics 
are pointed at Christ and the church. The New Testament's typological account of sex as oriented towards Christ and the church undergirds and explains all of Christianity's sexual ethic. So the commands that govern, this is true not just with sex, this is true with, with any earthly thing, any earthly type. The commands that govern the conduct of the type correspond to the conduct of the archetype, to what the type is pointing towards. Let me read that again. The commands that govern the conduct of the type correspond to the conduct of the archetype, what it's pointing towards. So we can see that here very quickly and easily with husbands and wives. The way that a husband and wife relate to each other, are called to relate to each other in their one flesh covenantal relationship, is supposed to correspond to the way that Christ and the church relate to one another in their one spirit covenantal relationship. Because of course Christ and the church are the archetypal reality towards which the husband and wife are pointing towards. So God calls husbands to sacrificially love their wives because Christ sacrificially loves his wife, the church. And God calls wives to respect and honor their husbands because the church respects and honors her husband, Jesus. And this typological account of sex and marriage not only explains the logic of marital ethics, how husbands and wives relate, but even more deeply, it explains the logic of all sexual ethics. The entire gamut of Christian sexual ethics are explained in this principle. If the one flesh relationship was created by God and from the very beginning to serve as a sign of Christ in the church, which is what Paul is saying here in this passage, he's saying this is a profound mystery, a man and a woman becoming one flesh, and refers to Christ in the church, if it's a sign that refers to Christ and the church, then all sexual activity finds its meaning and its justification in the higher reality of Christ and the church. And now my notes are out of order. Here we go. So whatever sexual activities correspond to or reflect the union of Christ and the church these are blessed and affirmed by God. But whatever sexual activities do not correspond to the union of Christ and the church, these are not blessed and affirmed by God. And this explains why adultery, fornication, pornography, divorce, polygamy, abortion, homosexual sex, polyamory, all of these are prohibited by Scripture because they don't correspond to the typological relationship between Christ and the church. They're not on the shopping list, as it were, because they're not part of the meal that God intends to make with our human sexuality. So Christians are called to faithful, monogamous, life-giving, one-flesh, sacrificial relationships between husbands and wives precisely because human sexuality was created to reflect the faithful, monogamous, life-giving, one-spirit, sacrificial relationship of Christ and the church. And Christian sexual ethics are designed by God to protect and to convey the image of the gospel that is con contained in human sexuality. And so God asks us, 
Jesus asks us through his church to submit the use of our sexuality, whatever our sexual preferences or our sexual instincts, to him as a witness and a sign of Christ's one spirit relationship with the church. Now, there's a lot more to be said here on this and how this relates to each of our individual lives, and we're going to try to tease out some of that in the weeks to come, especially as it relates to homosexual sex, abortion, transgenderism. We'll have a podcast on pornography. So there's a lot to be said here that we're not going to be able to say in this morning. But what I want to clarify here in this first sermon is that Christianity does indeed have a coherent and unified account of sexual ethics. So question for us on this first point is what organizes your sexual ethic? What brings cohesion to the way that you think about what is permissible or not permissible regarding sexual activity? If it's not the gold standard of Christ and the church, if you're not ordering your sexuality in conformity with the reality of Christ in the church, then what are you ordering your sexuality towards? Maybe your sexuality is as simple as whatever makes me feel good. But that's fundamentally a self-absorbed sexual ethic. And I think we all know in every area of our life, if we just pursue whatever makes me feel good, it doesn't actually work out very well. It's not life-giving. Right? So we need something that is beyond just our own sort of internal instincts. Right? Maybe your sexual ethic follows the culture's reigning sexual ethic of consent. The ethic of consent tells us that we can do anything we want with anyone we want as long as both parties or the three parties or the four parties or however many parties are involved all agree to it. But have you ever really thought about consent as a sexual ethic? Do whatever you want as long as you don't force someone is just another way of saying don't sexually assault each other. But is don't sexually assault each other really a sufficient life-giving sexual ethic that promotes human flourishing? Christianity gives us a sexual ethic that calls us to order our lives around the beauty of God's love for us that is conveyed in Christ's relationship with the church. Even if that sexual ethic is difficult and challenging. And we should just acknowledge that it is a challenging sexual ethic. And that leads to the second truth of the New Testament's typological account of sex which is this. The Christian sexual ethic proclaims the power to live according to it. When we say that we have become one spirit with Jesus in our marriage to Jesus spiritually, we are saying that he, in love, has placed his own divine life inside of us. He has made us one with himself. He has shared his spirit, his nature, with us. The divine life of Jesus that he places inside of us when we become one with him in this covenant of heavenly marriage is the supernatural life by which the Christian lives out all aspects of the Christian life. 
So listen, the Christian sexual ethic is hard. The Christian life is hard. All of it is too hard for us. Social scientists who consider human biology, they tell us that monogamy and chastity are not the natural inclinations of the human being. There's a lot of social science and historical work trying to figure out why the Western uh, world in which we live has tended towards monogamy and chastity when, in fact, that's not the way that our biological uh, orientation would tell us we should expect humans to live. We'll talk about some of that tonight. But they point out that from a biological perspective, monogamy and chastity run contrary to our natural impulses. And C.S. Lewis, who's written a book, Mere Christianity, uh, he makes this same point. Listen to what he says. He says, chastity is the most unpopular of the Christian virtues. There's no getting away from it. The old Christian rule is either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. This is so difficult and so contrary to our instinct that obviously either Christianity is wrong or our sexual instinct, as it now is, has gone wrong, one or the other. And I think that he's right. There is a tension that exists between our biological makeup and what Jesus is calling us to in our sexual activity. The Christian doctrine of sin teaches us that all of us have some measure of a bent sexuality. And we do not naturally gravitate towards sexual continence and chastity. But the Christian sexual ethic doesn't simply call us to follow God's will. It calls us to receive God's life. It proclaims the truth that God makes himself one with us through Christ and that his life is the power by which we are enabled to follow him. So Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. The old human life, that's been put to death. But Christ, he lives in me. His life now lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And that's the message of the gospel is that Christ has come, he has made himself one with us, and he has given us his life, and it's his life is the life by which we now live. So yes, let us grant that the Christian sexual ethic is difficult, more difficult for some than others, and it runs contrary to our broken human nature. But as Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, in our marriage to Christ, God has made us a partaker of the divine nature. And chastity doesn't run contrary to Christ's nature. And that's the nature by which we live. The message of Christian sexuality is the message fundamentally of the gospel. It's the message of both Jesus' shared life with us and the power to live his life, and also the message of Jesus' forgiveness. As we lean into our union with Jesus, we gain from him the capacity to live out his ethic. And as we fail to live out this ethic, we gain from him his forgiveness and his grace. And that's the message of our Christian sexual ethic. Step by step, the life of Christ inside of us teaches us how to live in accordance with his own divine life. Not perfectly, not all at once. But maybe this is a word for some of you this morning. 
Because you're trying to live out the Christian sexual ethic in the strength of your own natural life, in the strength of your flesh, and you're failing. And maybe you need to be reminded this morning that the power to live the Christian vision of sexuality isn't going to come from you. It's certainly not going to come from your flesh. In fact, your flesh will resist the Christian vision of sexuality. But it comes from your marriage to Christ, your spiritual union with Christ. It comes from the very thing that your sexuality is telling you you were created for, which is to be one with Jesus and to have his life guiding your life. So maybe you need to reboot your pursuit of the Christian vision of sexuality in conformity with the life of Christ and let that life of Christ animate and empower you rather than doing it in your own strength. Or maybe some of you this morning, you aren't even trying. You see the Christian vision of sexuality, it's beyond your reach, and you've just rolled over and went back to sleep. You're not even trying to live out the Christian vision of sexuality because it seems too fundamentally hard. But listen, if the road seems too long and the climb too difficult, don't despair because that's what Jesus is for. Accept his forgiveness for all the places that you've failed and call upon him and ask for his grace to just take the next step forward into what he is calling you towards. And that leads to our fourth or to our third and final point. Christian sexual ethics proclaim the love of God. And I want to close this point in particular with a word to our singles. Now, if you're married, you listen in too because this actually applies to you as well. But I specifically want to think about this in the context of our singles. Many of you here this morning, you're not married. Either because you're still too young or perhaps you're divorced. Maybe you're single by choice. Maybe one day you, you're single now, but you hope to be married, but you're not sure you will be able to be married. Maybe that worries you. Maybe it doesn't worry you. Some of you here are Christians. You self-identify as gay, and you don't intend to marry. You are committed to living a chaste and celibate life in keeping with the Christian sexual ethic. So if you're single, however you find yourself single this morning, let me just say a word to you. Perhaps you've been thinking throughout this sermon this morning, this typological account of sex sounds good for married folks, but not for me. It's great and all that sex is a profound mystery that reveals Christ in the church, but I'm not having sex and I'm not married, so I guess I'm missing out on the profound mystery. But here's the great news, and I think this is the most important thing that I want us to understand in all of our talk about sexuality over the next six weeks. As this typological account of sex teaches us that sex is only a type. It's not the real thing. Which means you don't have to be married and having sex to live into and experience the reality to which your sexuality points. One of the more remarkable things historically about Christianity is its valorization of singleness and celibacy. If you know much about the Old Testament, celibacy was not a thing in the Old Testament. There was no idealization of the celibate righteous man in the Old Testament or the righteous woman. But beginning with Jesus and with Paul, 
Celibacy and singleness came to be viewed in the New Testament as a great testimony that pointed to the hope of the gospel, every bit as much as marriage. Indeed, even more so than marriage, many have thought. And Paul is talking about that in 1 Corinthians 7. Because the fulfilled and flourishing celibate Christian man or woman testifies with their fulfilled and flourishing life that there is more to life than sex and marriage. That sex and marriage are only signs that point to the hope, the ultimate hope of our spiritual union with Christ. Celibate, flourishing, and fulfilled Christian singles testify with their contented and flourishing Christian single life that the meaning of human sexuality lies beyond human sexuality. And this is always the truth with every type. It teaches us that the meaning of the world lies beyond the world and that humans can have the archetypal reality of Christ without all the little types of Christ that this world reveals to us. So yes, flourishing marriages do testify to the flourishing reality of Jesus and the church, but no more than flourishing celibate singles testify to the flourishing reality of Jesus and the church. This point became especially uh, driven home to me probably a decade ago. I was in a theological symposium and we were doing some reading and work on human sexuality and we read uh, John Paul II's Theology of the Body. I know maybe a few of you have read that, but John Paul II was a pope three popes ago and uh, he wrote this big fat book on human sexuality and particularly focusing on sexual intimacy in marriage. And it's probably a 600, 700-page book, so there's a lot there. Uh, but as I read through it for this theological symposium, I was struck by just how sane and wise and such a breath of fresh air it was of anything that I've ever read on human sexuality. And I thought to myself, how does this 65, 70-year-old celibate man know so much about marital intimacy? Well, you know how he knows because he, he knows the archetype. He's in touch with the archetype of Christ and the church. And he has a deep and profound connection with Christ. And because there's a parallel between Christ and the church and the husbands and wives, he can give advice and counsel to husbands and wives even though he's never been married himself because he's experiencing the real thing. So if you're experiencing fully the real thing, you can talk about all the little shadow play things down there. Right? And that's the reality of sex as a type or an image of Christ in the church. Earthly sex can be beautiful, but it, it's only a type. And if you've laid hold of the archetype of Christ in the church in the most profound, deepest way, well, then you can see how it eclipses all the little types and shadows of sexuality. And maybe that's a word that some of you, even as married people, need to hear. Because it's hard sometimes even for married people to imagine that there's an experience of Christ that could eclipse the marital intimacy. But I can tell you that there is an experience of Christ that eclipses marital intimacy. God has created marital intimacy as just a sign that points beyond itself to the true joy that is Jesus. We can have the joy of the archetype 
even without the joy of the type. So God loves us. He's created the whole world to communicate his love for us. The morning beauty of the sunrise, the evening peace of the sunset, the tenderness of a mother's smile, the firmness of a father's love, the voice of a dear friend, the touch of a caring hand, all of these types and signs have been given by God to us as indicators and reminders of his love. And sex, too, when it conforms to the image of Christ and the church, is a sign of his unconditional covenant love for us. But even though sex is a sign of God's love, it's just a sign, and the real thing is Jesus. So sex and marriage are gifts from God, and if you're single this morning and you want to be married, then pray to God and ask him to send you a spouse. But if he hasn't yet, or if it's not his intention to send you a spouse. Don't despair in your singleness because true life, true thriving life, true joy is found fundamentally in your relationship with Jesus. So for all of us, married, single, gay, straight, transgender, doesn't matter. All of us, if we surrender our sexuality to Jesus, he will use it to lead us to himself, whether that's in marriage or outside of marriage. And he will teach us the true joy that can be found in him. Now, there's more to be said about all of this, which is why we're going to be having more sermons and podcasts, particularly, I think, as it relates to homosexuality. I don't know if I mentioned already, we're going to be doing a podcast on singleness, so that'll be one of the episodes. So there's more to say there as well. But as we embark on this journey, let me just say again, the Christian sexual ethic is hard. It's hard. It's hard to live out faithfully in our own lives. And it's increasingly harder to bear in the face of a hostile culture. But it does point to the joy of Jesus. And Augustine, he wrote this. He said, It is of Christ and the church that it is most truly said, and the two shall become one flesh. Our whole sexuality is pointing towards the truth that Christ and the church have become one that God loves us so much that he wanted to become one with us so that we could share in his life and he could share in ours. And as we lean into that reality with our sexuality, it backfills and gives meaning and purpose into all that we are as sexual beings. So let's pursue the image of Christ and the church and enter into the joy that waits for us there. Father, thank you for giving us Christ. Thank you for making us one with him. Thank you for the beauty of that relationship. And uh, Lord, it challenges all of us in different ways and to different degrees. But I pray uh, even right now as we consider what it is that you are calling us to, help us to believe that you call us to these things because you want our best. That you want us to experience the joy that comes from being one with you in Christ. So God, help us to find you in that as we surrender to you the use of our sexuality in a way that guides us into a deeper relationship with you. God, guide us step by step. Help us to keep trusting in you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen.